Chapter Sixteen of the Princess and Curdie by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mattock. While the magistrate reinvigorated his selfishness with a greedy breakfast, Curdie found doing nothing in the dark rather wearisome work. It was useless attempting to think what he should do next, seeing the circumstances in which he was presently to find himself were altogether unknown to him. So he began to think about his father and mother in their little cottage home, high in the clear air of the open mountainside, and the thought, instead of making his dungeon gloomier by contrast, made a light in his soul that destroyed the power of darkness and captivity. But he was at length startled from his waking dream by a swell in the noise outside. All the time there had been a few of the more idle of the inhabitants about the door, but they had been rather quiet. Now, however, the sounds of feet and voices began to grow, and grew so rapidly that it was plain a multitude was gathering. For the people of Gwynstorm always gave themselves an hour of pleasure after their second breakfast, and what greater pleasure could they have than to see a stranger abused by the officers of justice? The noise grew till it was like the roaring of the sea, and that roaring went on a long time, for the magistrate, being a great man, liked to know that he was waited for. It added to the enjoyment of his breakfast, and, indeed, enabled him to eat a little more after he had thought his powers exhausted. But at length, in the waves of the human noises, rose a bigger wave, and by the running and shouting and outcry, Curdie learned that the magistrate was approaching. Presently came the sound of a great rusty key in the lock, which yielded with groaning reluctance. The door was thrown back, the light rushed in, and with it came the voice of the city marshal, calling upon Curdie, by many legal epithets opprobrious, to come forth and be tried for his life, inasmuch as he had raised a tumult in the majesty's city of Gwynstorm, troubled the hearts of the king's baker and barber, and slain the faithful dogs of his majesty's well-beloved butchers. He was still reading, and Curdie was still seated in the brown twilight of the vault, not listening, but pondering with himself how this king the city marshal talked of could be the same with the majesty he had seen ride away on his grand white horse, with the princess Irene on a cushion before him, when a scream of agonized terror arose on the farthest skirt of the crowd, and, swifter than flood or flame, the horror spread shrieking. In a moment the air was filled with hideous howling, cries of unspeakable dismay, and the multitudinous noise of running feet. The next moment, in at the door of the vault, bounded Lena, her two green eyes flaming yellow as sunflowers, and seeming to light up the dungeon. With one spring she threw herself at Curdie's feet, and laid her head upon them, panting. Then came a rush of two or three soldiers darkening the doorway, but it was only to lay hold of the key, pull the door to, and lock it, so that once more Curdie and Lena were prisoners together. For a few moments Lena lay panting hard. It is breathless work, leaping and roaring both at once, and that in a way to scatter thousands of people. Then she jumped up, and began snuffing about all over the place, and Curdie saw what he had never seen before, 
two faint spots of light cast from her eyes upon the ground, one on each side of her snuffing nose. He got out his tinder-box, a miner is never without one, and lighted a precious bit of candle he carried in a division of it, just for a moment, for he must not waste it. The light revealed a vault without any window or other opening than the door. It was very old and much neglected. The mortar had vanished from between the stones, and it was half filled with a heap of all sorts of rubbish, beaten down in the middle, but looser at the sides. It sloped from the door to the foot of the opposite wall. Evidently for a long time the vault had been left open, and every sort of refuse thrown into it. A single minute served for the survey, so little was there to note. Meantime, down in the angle between the back wall and the base of the heap, Lena was scratching furiously with all the eighteen great strong claws of her mighty feet. "'Aha!' said Curdie to himself, catching sight of her. "'If only they will leave us long enough to ourselves!' With that he ran to the door to see if there was any fastening on the inside. There was none. In all its long history it never had had one. But a few blows of the right sort, now from the one, now from the other end of his mattock, were as good as any bolt, for they so ruined the lock that no key could ever turn in it again. Those who heard them fancied he was trying to get out, and laughed spitefully. As soon as he had done he extinguished his candle, and went down to Lena. She had reached the hard rock which formed the floor of the dungeon, and was now clearing away the earth a little wider. Presently she looked up in his face and whined, as much as to say, "'My paws are not hard enough to get on any further.' "'Then get out of my way, Lena,' said Curdie, "'and mind you keep your eyes shining, for fear I should hit you.' So saying, he heaved his mattock, and assailed with the hammer-end of it the spot she had cleared. The rock was very hard, but when it did break it broke in good-sized pieces. Now with hammer, now with pick, he worked till he was weary, then rested, and then set to again. He could not tell how the day went, as he had no light but the lamping of Lena's eyes. The darkness hampered him greatly, for he would not let Lena come close enough to give him all the light she could lest he should strike her. So he had, every now and then, to feel with his hands to know how he was getting on, and to discover in what direction to strike. The exact spot was a mere imagination. He was getting very tired and hungry, and beginning to lose heart a little, when out of the ground, as if he had struck a spring of it, burst a dull, gleamy, lead-coloured light, and the next moment he heard a hollow splash and echo. A piece of rock had fallen out of the floor, and dropped into water beneath. Already Lena, who had been lying a few yards off all the time he worked, was on her feet and peering through the hole. Curdie got down on his hands and knees and looked. They were over what seemed a natural cave in the rock, to which apparently the river had access, for, at a great distance below, a faint light was gleaming upon water. If they could but reach it, they might get out, but even if it was deep enough, the height was very dangerous. The first thing, whatever might follow, was to make the hole larger. It was comparatively easy to break away the sides of it. 
and in the course of another hour he had it large enough to get through. And now he must reconnoitre. He took the rope they had tied him with, for Curdie's hindrances were always his furtherance, and fastened one end of it by a slip-knot round the handle of his pickaxe, then dropped the other end through, and laid the pickaxe so that, when he was through himself, and hanging on to the edge, he could place it across the hole to support him on the rope. This done, he took the rope in his hands, and beginning to descend, found himself in a narrow cleft, widening into a cave. His rope was not very long, and would not do much to lessen the force of his fall, he thought with himself, if he should have to drop into the water. But he was not more than a couple of yards below the dungeon, when he spied an opening on the opposite side of the cleft. It might be but a shallow hole, or it might lead them out. He dropped himself a little below its level, gave the rope a swing by pushing his feet against the side of the cleft, and so penduled himself into it. Then he laid a stone on the end of the rope, that it should not forsake him, called to Lena, whose yellow eyes were gleaming over the mattock grating above, to watch there till he returned, and went cautiously in. It proved a passage, level for some distance, then sloping gently up. He advanced carefully, feeling his way as he went. At length he was stopped by a door, a small door, studded with iron. But the wood was in places so much decayed that some of the bolts had dropped out, and he felt sure of being able to open it. He returned, therefore, to fetch Lena and his mattock. Arrived at the cleft, his strong minor arms bore him swiftly up along the rope and threw the hole into the dungeon. There he undid the rope from his mattock, and making Lena take the end of it in her teeth and get through the hole, he lowered her. It was all he could do, she was so heavy. When she came opposite the passage, with a slight push of her tail, she shot herself into it and let go the rope which Curdie drew up. Then he lighted his candle, and searching in the rubbish, found a bit of iron to take the place of his pickaxe across the hole. Then he searched again in the rubbish, and found half an old shutter. This he propped up, leaning a little over the hole, with a bit of stick, and heaped against the back of it a quantity of the loosened earth. Next he tied his mattock to the end of the rope, dropped it, and let it hang. Last he got through the hole himself, and pulled away the propping stick, so that the shutter fell over the hole, with a quantity of earth on the top of it. A few motions of hand over hand, and he swung himself and his mattock into the passage beside Lena. There he secured the end of the rope, and they went on together to the door. End of chapter 16 Recording by Hannah Mary